If you decide you want tomatoes, hopefully in the spring of the year, and you're longing for the ones that have been growing in the sun and fresh coming from your backyard, rather than the ones you buy at the grocery store, there are some things you have to do. You have to clear some space in the backyard. You have to commit some of your acreage to a garden. You have to do the work of preparing the soil, getting it ready. Some things have got to be planted there if you expect a crop, if you expect something to change because tomatoes are just not going to grow in your yard by themselves. I don't know if you've ever tried that before. It doesn't work. Praying for those tomatoes to grow in your yard is a rather pointless task. You have to prepare the soil, right? Our spiritual growth is about preparing soil. And I wonder at times, um, when we talk about prayer, what does prayer produce for you? I mean, we talk about prayer. Um, Maybe we talk about prayer more than we pray, I don't know. I wonder how much do we really rely on God? There are a couple of central questions uh, that must be asked when we talk about prayer. Do we feel the need to pray only when we are in need? Do we, do we pray only when desperate? Or do we recognize that we always have the need to pray because even if we're not desperate, someone we know is desperate. Or, you know, there are some other realms or types of praying. People talk about communion with God. Is this a real thing or just something pious people talk about? Do we have any practices or time invested in just being quiet before God? Have any of those times produced anything for us? And is the measure of those times based on what is produced in a very pragmatic sense of the way, word, or, or is, it, is it something else? I think there's lots of questions about prayer that linger, and the passage that we're going to consider this morning ends with a conversation about prayer. This is the record of the encounter from the Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter, starting in the 14th verse. This is Mark 9, 14 to 29, and I would invite you to stand with me out of respect for the reading of the Gospel. Mark 9, 14. When they came to the disciples, this is Jesus and the three, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, Jesus, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet them. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, 
and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid, and I ask your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father of the boy, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. Lord Jesus, help us to perceive the meaning of your word today by your Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus is coming down from the mountain. His glory has been revealed. I think there's a common thread between the story of the transfiguration, the revealing of God's glory, and the story of Jesus' baptism. God speaks from heaven in both situations, and interestingly, in both of those situations, baptism and this revealing of glory, Jesus immediately confronts the demonic. In the baptism story, by the Spirit, he's led into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Here he comes down from having his glory revealed again, and he's confronted with a demon who has taken over the body of a little boy. Jesus comes down the mountain and runs smack into the dispute. What, what's the nature of the dispute that he encounters? The disciples have failed in their attempt to heal. Scribes show up to question what is going on. What were the questions in the scribes' minds? Do these disciples have the right to perform an exorcism? If these people are true disciples, why can't they do what their master can do? Some of them have already provided healing to others previously. Why can't they do it now? There's a level of embarrassment among the disciples. The disciples know they should be able to do this, but they can't. So there's a dispute, and everyone is surprised when Jesus shows up just in the nick of time. The one with the most to lose, the father of the boy, introduces himself to Jesus first, addresses him first. 
you know, my son, my little boy, this is his condition. It's no surprise that the dad is concerned. And Jesus, weary and somewhat exasperated, sighs and responds to the disciples, oh my gracious, how long do I have to put up with you? You faithless, you lacking in faith band of followers. It's almost as if Jesus is saying to his disciples the same, to- same thing we've heard God say about Israel again and again and again in the Old Testament. You faithless generation, how long must I endure you? Notice how the evil spirit reacts when confronted by Jesus. This demon is in trouble, and so he goes for the jugular. He wants to display his power. The boy is convulsed even more violently. Compassionately, Jesus addresses the father. How long has this been going on? The father responds, forever. It's clear that the father of this little boy, that his faith has been shaken. He came to Jesus originally, so he must have had some faith, but the failure of the disciples causes him to lose certainty, to lose confidence that anything can be done. He begins to lose faith that Jesus can do anything. I'd like to camp right here for a little bit with this thought. When the disciples of Jesus lose faith, people who are expecting faith from his disciples lose faith in Jesus. I wonder, is that a sermon I have to preach or is that something you already know? If I lose faith, then I should assume that some members of my congregation will lose faith. When dads and moms lose faith, some of their children lose faith. When husbands lose faith, some wives lose faith. When wives lose faith, some husbands lose faith. When older siblings lose faith, some younger siblings lose faith. When you lose faith, what chance do the people you're praying for have in finding faith? I mean, if you don't believe, who will the people who trust in you believe in? When the church loses faith, what chance does the world have? When we celebrate communion together, there's a line in the ritual that goes, as a part of the prayer, that we may be the body of Christ for the world. What does a a statement like that mean? It means that somehow the world's chance of knowing who Christ is comes through the church and our faith and our faithful witness to who Christ is. So our responsibility to trust in Christ is significant for the sake of all those others who Christ wants to show himself to through us. So it's important. The father lost some of his faith in Jesus because of the failure of the disciples' faith. And Jesus sighs, weary and a little bit impatient with the disciples, I think, if, 
if Jesus is impatient? Because they have lost some of their confidence in Jesus' ability. If you want to ruminate on that sermon for the rest of the time this morning, you go right ahead. But there's more to the story, and I'm going to push forward. The father of the son, of the child, expresses his ambivalent faith in this statement. If you are able to do something, that's not like a statement of ringing confidence, is it? If you're able to do something, this is desperation and a lack of hope speaking. And Jesus confronts it immediately. If I'm able, it's like, are you serious? Do you, do you know who's standing right here before you? Of course I'm able. But this is gonna rely on whether you have faith in me and my Father, that the power of heaven is greater than the power of the darkness. You have a part to play in this. Your faith is a part of what is going to be transacted here. You're involved in this, your faith matters. You must believe, we can't even begin to move forward until we know you believe. And Dad, in complete honesty, replies with these words that I love. Perhaps even if they aren't the words that Jesus hoped to hear. Because I'm thinking Jesus is hoping the guy will say, of course I believe, right? Exercises all the faith you can muster up. But this guy is wonderfully honest, isn't he? And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. This is sort of the cry of humanity, isn't it? We don't know what's possible. Our minds are clouded by fear, by sin, by disbelief. But it's really encouraging to me that this amount of faith that the Father articulates in this statement is all that Jesus requires. A statement of belief added to a statement of trust that Jesus could provide whatever is lacking in my faith. I believe and help me believe. This is reliance on Jesus, and this is what Jesus is after. It is enough. The dad's faith is critical, but everything doesn't hang on the dad's faith. It is the combination of the dad's faith and Jesus's faith that gets the job done. Previously, dad's lack of faith coupled with the disciples' lack of faith was insufficient to get the job done. These disciples, I think, just assumed because they had successfully healed before that they could just turn the healing power on and off with them like a light switch and that healing power was arbitrarily theirs to use as they saw fit. They didn't understand the power to heal was never theirs to turn on or off. Each and every time God used them to heal, it was due, on their, due to their reliance on him completely. It was first and last always his work, his power, 
his deed. Human resources are never enough to accomplish healing. Our reliance on God is always critical. I think it's helpful to observe in this story um, that Mark sends us some other messages as well. When, when the demon comes out, in the act of leaving, he leaves the little boy looking like a dead person. I think in an echo of the story of Jairus' daughter, Jesus just raises this boy to life, lifts him to his feet again. And whether the boy is actually dead or not, the story doesn't say. I don't know that it really matters. Jesus brings life in the face of death. Don't miss that message. Mark puts that here on purpose for you to see. And I think it's there for all people who might be losing faith. Maybe losing faith in the people around them or losing faith in their partners or losing faith in their friends or their family or losing faith in the church or maybe even losing faith in God himself. When, when you are losing faith, when you can't see your way into any possible future, when you are about to give up, when things look bleak, remember that Mark put this little picture here for you. Jesus is the one who brings the dead back to life, who creates a future when there doesn't appear to be any future before them. This is Jesus' specialty. This is good news. Jesus brings life. This Wednesday I was at the funeral of a young lady who I knew who was part of a previous church that I pastored who got to the place in her life where she couldn't see any future. It's a product of mental illness and depression and some addictions to substances and things and she tragically ended her life. And even though she pursued Christ with all that she was, at some point, she wasn't able to see through, see any positive future for her. And there wasn't a person who was able to speak to her and say, Jesus always has a future. Jesus always has a tomorrow for you. And she lost that battle with the darkness on that day. I don't, I don't believe that a loss like that cancels all the other victories in her life. Mental illness is a thing. It's a real thing. And it takes casualties, even among Christians. But I think, I pray that in our darkest moments, whether we're wrestling with mental illness or depression or whatever it is, we will never ever forget that Jesus is the one who brings life. And if we will rely on him and trust in him, he will give us a future. Isn't that the promise of Jeremiah? What do I have in mind for you? To give you a future, to prosper you. And even if I can't see that today, believe confidently that he has a future 
through the darkness of the present moment. Jesus brings life. So the little boy is freed, he's healed, his darkness is cleared, and they head into the house. We don't know which house, it just says a house. Might have been the boy's house, we don't know. And as the disciples, embarrassed by their impotence, begin to talk, they want to know why their power to heal has evaporated. And so they ask Jesus, Jesus, hey, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we, why couldn't we handle this one? And they only get the barest answer from Jesus. And it is not the answer they or we would expect from him. I mean, you might expect Jesus to say, you know, well, boys, when you have a little more experience under your belt, then you'll be able to, or, or, well, you can't expect to be as good as I am this early in your career. I mean, you'll get better at this. Or, or maybe he would say, you know, there are some magic words you have to say. Words like, in Jesus' name, or we thank you in advance what you're going to do. You know, words that demonstrate that you have adequate faith to get the job done. Or maybe, or maybe we even expect Jesus to say, well, you know, you guys aren't me. You don't have as much power as I have. We might have expected any of those answers. We get no answers like that at all. None of those things were the difference makers. None of those things were the reason the disciples are impotent in the face of this demonic oppression. All we get is this kind comes out only through prayer. At some level, some of those other answers might have been easier to understand. We could have just created different classifications and sort of said, you know, maybe we'll get there someday or whatever. This answer, brief, but more difficult. I mean, I've heard people say that prayer is powerful. Is that what Jesus means? That you have to add prayer to your incantation in order to exercise the kind of power that he has exercised here? That's not it at all. He's not talking about the power of prayer here. In this passage, when he says, this only comes out through prayer, he's identifying by way of a vital connection to the Father. By way of a vital connection to the Father. There's no place for self-reliance in a situation like this. There are no special ways, no special words for asking. There's no waving of hands. There's no anointing of oil. What is required is a vital faith in the Father's ability and a vital connection, vital active connection to the Father. In other words, God must be present if this kind is going to be defeated. God must be present, perhaps present by virtue of the fact that your faith brings him, that he is manifest through your faith in his presence. And when you pray, not relying on yourself, but on the one to whom you pray, God is present. And then God will do what God will do. This requires us to firmly believe and embrace the concept that we are not in control. The minute you start to think that you're in control, 
you've put yourself on a dangerous footing. It is God in whom we trust. He is the one we have faith in. He is the one we must dedicate our lives to. He is the one we bring to the crises of our lives. It's his power that makes the difference. Jesus is the one who brings life. He is the one who unleashes life. He's the one who causes life in us to grow. It all hangs on that vital connection we have with the Father. Do you believe the Father to that level? I mean, the disciples had to be confused. We could cast out these demons three weeks ago, and now we can't do it today. Is this demon stronger than those demons? I don't think that's what is on the table here. I think it's they began to see that they could do this in this setting and figured, well, you know, we can just do this. We have this ability. It was always the Father's ability. They were just given authority by Jesus to access the Father so that the Father could work through them. They were conduits of the Father's power. The minute we think the power resides in us, we are cruising for a bruising. But when we rely on the Father because of our faith and trust in him, Jesus brings life. And I'm wondering, have we cleared space in our life so that we can develop that kind of trust in him? Have we, have we brought that kind of faith to our difficulties, expecting him to help us in the same way this father asks? I believe helped my, under, my unbelief. I mean, if, if we recognize we don't believe as we should, are we willing to pray, Lord, help me to trust you more. Help me to rely on you more. These things that I'm worrying about, I think Marlene said to me this week, you know, why pray when we can worry? We, we, we're like that sometimes, aren't we? We enjoy our worrying too much, but what if we began to embrace the discipline of taking these worries to the Father and saying, Father, help me believe that you're at work in this situation. Bring life to me so that I can trust you. Help my unbelief. Clear some of the soil of your life and plant some tomatoes and see what grows. Clear out some of the doubt of your life, some of the assumptions of your life that God's not gonna work in this particular area, clear out some of those weeds, and see what a planting of faith will cause to grow in you. Will you live by faith? Will you ask him to make your faith increase? Or will you live just by what you see and what you can do? I mean, we all raise our hand when I say, how many of us want to live by faith? Yeah, we want to. How many of us want to clear the soil of our life and do any planting? How many take the idea of asking the Father to help us with our unbelief seriously? The old folks used to sing a hymn entitled, Living by Faith. I couldn't find any better 
song to close the service with today. It's in the hymnal on page 566. I'd like to invite you to sing these first three verses with me. I think it's 566. Living by faith. And invite you to consider what it means to exercise faith, to declare faith in Christ, especially in the areas where you find that difficult. I'm going to invite you to stand, and it's hymn number 566, and we'll sing verses 1, 2, and 3 together. I care not today what tomorrow may bring, if shadow or sunshine or rain. The Lord I know ruleth o'er everything, and all of my worry is vain. Living by faith in Jesus above, trusting, confiding in his great love. Safe from all harm in his sheltering Lord. I'm living by faith and feel no alarm. Though tempests may blow and the storm clouds arise, obscuring the brightest of light. I'm never alarmed at the overcast skies. The master looks on at the strife. Living by faith in Jesus above, trusting, confiding in his great love. Safe from all safely will carry me through no matter what evils betide why should i then care though the tempest may blow if jesus walks close to my side living by faith in jesus above trusting Now may the God of mercy and peace and healing increase our faith together. 
that we may know the expression of the power of God in our lives and that we might have true life in him. Amen.